0: Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Um, we had a, a bit of a tragedy happen this week um, in our city, didn't we? Uh, with a football player um, and the world's eyes were on us. And it was an opportunity for God to show that he is in control, wasn't it? And... Um, Seeing a, a national sportscaster pray aloud on the TV, that's pretty unbelievable. Um, but I, I hope that that is an encouragement to you, that God really does reign in control. And I hope that uh, gives your heart much comfort this morning. Let's pay, pray real quick before we dive into the sermon here. Um, Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you. Um, you are good. We can trust you. In hard times, and good, um, in confusing times, I thank you that we can trust you. Um, Your word says, where else can we go? You alone have words of life. Words of life. So, Lord, I pray that you would breathe that life into us this morning by your word. I pray that you would awaken our hearts the parts of us that have been dulled by sorrow and heaviness, I pray that you would breathe fresh life into them this morning. Would you come and meet us, Jesus, and would you help us to see you anew? We pray in your name. Amen. Well, I am Jennifer Cronk. I'm the pastor of Children and Families here, and I have the pleasure of bringing you the word this morning. Um, I have to start out with a confession. I recently caught myself... As we say in the South, hollering at the TV. Have you ever done that? When you're watching a TV show, a movie, maybe even a sports game, have you ever found yourself talking to or hollering at one of the people on screen? Maybe it was out loud, maybe it was just in your head. It might sound a little something like this. What are you thinking? Why did you just do that? That's definitely not what I would say. Or even, anybody can see that that was a terrible call, ref. These situations, though they're incredibly common, they reveal something important about us. Most of us have an empathy problem. Empathy is the ability to understand another person's feelings or experiences to put yourself in another person's shoes and to imagine how they might be experiencing a situation. It's the capacity to shut off the automatic filter of what we would say or do or feel or respond and rather to seek to understand why another person did, said, felt, or responded the way that they did. It's the capacity to hit pause on our judgment, and to choose to get curious instead. We're living in a me, myself, and I culture. That combined with our sinful, fallen, and self-focused natures, it makes empathy especially challenging for us. In our sermon series that we started last week, we were looking at how the church can reflect the goodness of God. This week, we will focus on God's goodness attribute of empathy. Of course, if we want to see the empathy of God, the very first place that we should look is the life of Jesus. The story that really shines a bright light on the empathy of Jesus is the story of Lazarus, and it's found in chapter 11 of the book of John. It's a long story, so you may want to open your Bible. There's a few Bibles in the uh, seat back in front of you. You may want to follow along with me. Again, we're in John chapter 11. I want to invite you to get curious about the people in this story, even and especially to get curious about Jesus. We'll start together in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. It was Mary who had anointed Jesus with ointment and wiped his feet with her very own hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. If I'm being honest, this story is kind of confusing. Mary and Martha had sent word to Jesus, a desperate plea, letting him know that their brother Lazarus was dangerously sick. That he would probably even die unless Jesus would come and heal him ASAP. Jesus' response to that message is perplexing. We're told that Jesus loves this family dearly. So what does he do? He stayed two more days where he was. Mary and Martha at this point are beside themselves with anxiety and grief. And yet Jesus, he seems cool as a cucumber. It's confusing, right? Let's see what happens next in the story. We'll pick back up at verse 7. Then after this, Jesus said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. He will recover. Oh, sorry, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of Lazarus' death, but the disciples thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Okay, so I know this is, this is kind of a confusing pause, a place, so let's pause and recap. After those two additional days had passed, Jesus finally to go back to Judea to see Lazarus. Then we have a strange conversation with his disciples about How many hours there are in the day? Of course, why not? And then there's talk of light and darkness. And at this point, everyone is so confused that Thomas is like, okay, let's just go die and get it over with. Super strange, right? So let's dig into this part a little bit more so we can understand what's going on. So I found this commentary by verse by verse ministry, and I thought it was super helpful in breaking down what's happening in this part of the story. It says this, the disciples say they are worried for Jesus. They say if he goes to Jerusalem, he may be killed. But Jesus knows their hearts. Jesus knows that they are worried for themselves just as much as they are for him. They are his disciples and therefore they risk persecution as well. So they try to convince Jesus not to go. Jesus tells the parable to explain why they have nothing to fear. If they go to Jerusalem with Jesus, who is pictured as the sun in this parable, then they will have nothing to fear. Like the sun protects us from stumbling, Jesus will protect the disciples from stumbling as well. If they were to go without him, to walk in the dark... Then they would have reason to fear the consequences. So Jesus was telling his disciples, listen guys, as long as you walk with me and trust me, you don't have to fear anything in this life or the next. He was about to make this a hands-on lesson for them that they would not soon forget. So we'll go back into our story now. We are in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. And when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to Jesus. Now he had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were there in her house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and she said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So Jesus arrives on the scene here in Bethany. First person he's greeted by is Martha. Who not so subtly lets him know that if he had come when they asked him to, the situation could have ended very differently. Friends, Jesus could have taken a shortcut to save Mary and Martha from the very real pain that they were feeling. He could have taken a shortcut to save himself from the very real pain that he was feeling. But instead, he empathized. He entered in to that pain. So we're almost, we're almost to the end of the story now. Hold on with me. We're going to go back to verse 34. And Jesus asked, where have you laid him? away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there's going to be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. Jesus was willing to do things God's way. In God's timing, even when it hurt, he allowed himself to enter into Mary and Martha's pain, to put himself in their shoes. Even though he clearly knew the end of the story, remember when he alluded to it with his disciples at the beginning of the chapter? Even though he knew the end of the story, he still allowed himself To feel crucial about Jesus here. He doesn't just feel what it's like to be in our shoes. He puts himself in our very place to feel our pain, to absorb our sorrow, and even to bear the weight of our sin and God's judgment. Jesus doesn't just feel empathy. Jesus is where we see empathy best embodied. So how does he do it? How does he endure the kind of pain and difficulty that this kind of empathy would bring him? The key to being able to empathize like Jesus is trust. Trust in God's timing, his ways, and his plans as Elizabeth Elliot puts it, whatever is in the cup that God is offering to me, whether it be pain and sorrow and suffering and grief, along with the many more joys I'm willing to take because I trust him. We can only learn to put ourselves in another's shoes when we can learn to trust God and his goodness. That's why empathy is such a critical, tactile way that we show others what the goodness of God looks like. Christ-like empathy requires us to trust God to help us to love like he does. One summer, I was enjoying peach cobbler on my front porch with a friend of mine. I was asking her about how a friendship of hers was going. She expressed that it was pretty much status quo, which in my interpretation meant that she was giving more to the friendship than she was receiving from it. I asked her why she continued to invest in this person if that was the case. Her reply stunned me. She said, well, I have the social and emotional energy to do it, so why not? It was such a radically different perspective Than what we hear from the world. Her words stayed with me. And I've thought often about them. And as I was preparing this sermon. I once again thought about that conversation. I thought of it because I noticed that Jesus. Always had those kind of social and emotional reserves to draw from. It wasn't because his social and emotional energy were inexhaustible. Jesus was 100% human, just as much as he was 100% divine. Which means that he got depleted just like we do. There were people that were wearisome to Jesus too. But Jesus was perfectly emotionally regulated. Jesus monitored his own heart regularly. And he adjusted his life rhythms according to what he saw that he needed. When he needed to withdraw, he withdrew. When he needed to pray, he prayed. When he needed to eat, he ate. Jesus always kept himself in check. And because he did so, he had the reserves that he needed to be able to enter other people's stories with true, genuine empathy. This idea makes me think about Kroger fuel points. And you're going to be thinking that's strange, but let me explain. You see, my dad is one of the most efficient people that I know, especially when it comes to making the most of his Kroger fuel points. I went home last week to celebrate my mom's birthday. My dad made sure that after lunch, All of us drove over to Kroger together so that we could fill up my gas tank, his gas tank, and about five extra gas cans that he had brought with him, especially for that purpose. Now, some of you are laughing right now, right? Because you might know someone who does this very same thing. But it's a great picture for us of how Jesus lived his life. Because Jesus put in the consistent work of letting God fill him up to overflowing, he always had those extra reserves on hand. He could say, like my friend, why not? I have it to give. Now, that is not to say that empathizing with others will always feel great or will cost us nothing. After all, my dad still had to pay his own money out of his own pocket to fill up those gas tanks, right? Nobody is giving away gas for free. But the call of the Christian life is to pursue the goodness of God, both in our lives and in the lives of others. We're called to put in the hard, daily, ordinary work of regulating ourselves. Of checking in and asking ourselves, what do we need? How are our hearts doing? Where do we need to ask God for more of his grace and more of his spirit? One more timely word here from Elizabeth Elliot. What is good is generally assumed ought to make us feel good. For example, if it's the will of God, we will feel good about it. That is not always the case, though. Jonah had no good feelings about going to Joppa. If empathizing with others, truly entering into their stories may not always give us those warm fuzzies, right? It may not always feel good. We may not get a thank you note in the mail. We may not see a quick or maybe even any return on our investment, but that's not the reason we do it. We do it because Jesus did and he still does. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. Friends, every day that Jesus sits at the right hand of God and prays for us, he is entering into our stories again and again and again. He is showing the empathetic heart of God towards us. Jesus reminds us of the goodness of God and He empowers us to do the same for others. There was a time many years ago when I got to experience this as the empathizer. A friend of mine called me in tears. Between her sobs, she managed to communicate that a deep betrayal had just been experienced by someone close to her. They had deeply betrayed her. As I listened, I found that I felt tears running down my own cheeks. I was experiencing her pain along with her. The person that she was telling about, he hadn't hurt me in any way. And what they had done, it didn't really affect my life. But it deeply hurt my friend. And my love for her allowed me to enter into her pain. To cry with her rather than for her. I encouraged her to take some time off work to come and visit me. We spent the next week together crying, talking, and praying. We sought the Lord together and we invited him to join us in our joint pain, to bring his healing and his restoration into the situation. It was a beautiful and hard week, but we both experienced God in new ways as Emmanuel, God with us. So I'm hoping at this point in our conversation that you see the value of empathy, that you see that Jesus consistently displayed empathy, that he consistently, in fact, still displays it towards us and that you're ready to grow in empathy yourself. So what now? On the screens, you'll see eight strategies to develop empathy, but I'm going to add one more, and you'll see it at the end. Can we go ahead and bring that up? Thanks. Okay, so number one, cultivate curiosity. Cultivating curiosity means starting with questions rather than assumptions. It's the part of empathy that seeks to understand rather than to assume or to judge. Number two, step out of your comfort zone. We cannot begin to understand others' perspective if our own are very narrow. Learning empathy can be as simple as trying a new food, learning a new language, taking a dance class, or going to another part of town. Get out of your comfort zone. Number three, receive feedback. And I'm going to actually extend that and say, invite feedback. I will be the first person to admit that I'm a little bit of a sensitive person when it comes to criticism. Critique from others is hard for me because I have already said it to myself five to ten times in my head. I'm really hard on myself. But I understand that I cannot grow in my capacity to understand and empathize with others if I can't see what my own blind spots are. Inviting feedback from safe people allows us to hear hard things and to grow through them. Number four, examine your biases. We all see the world through different lenses. Our own experiences, values, beliefs, culture, the media, and the influence of others contribute to the lenses that we each wear. Have any of you ever tried on a pair of uh, pharmacy prescription glasses, like those readers that you pick up at the pharmacy? If you have, you probably know that not all lenses are created equal. Right? (laughs) It's not the same as when you actually go to your optician. The lenses through which we look can influence the way that we see the world. They can either help clarify or they can distort it. We need to examine whether we're seeing clearly or not and what muddy or dirty areas we might need to be cleaned up or worked on in our, the way that we see things. Number five walk in the shoes of others. When I was in college, I worked at Waffle House for a summer. I made a point of trying every single job at the restaurant while I was there so that I could learn the unique challenges of each. That experience made me so much more patient and encouraging to my coworkers. It also helped me to earn their trust and respect. But... I had to be willing to get burned by great bacon grease and how to wash hundreds of dishes in a matter of minutes. So it's not always easy, but it's good. Number six, difficult, respectful conversations. A necessary part of addressing our blind spot, spots is having difficult conversations. If we live in an echo chamber where we only hear our same views and opinions repeated back to us, we experience the opposite of empathy. We must open up our hearts, ask difficult questions, and then really listen to others' answers. We need to create a safe space for them to be able to share honestly and truthfully. I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus never argued. And he listened far more than he talked. And he was God. So if he can practice that same kind of patient listening, we can too. We can take a cue from him. Number seven, join a shared cause. When we're uniting with others over a shared passion, we often find that our hearts open up to those people as well. We find things we have in common starting with the obvious and progressing to the surprising. And we get closer to those people. In sharing a cause, we share our hearts, which is the core of empathy. And I would put in a plug here, serving in your church is a great way to do this. Number eight, read widely. I love books. Books open up our imagination, which takes us out of ourselves and our own little worlds, and it helps us to enter into other worlds and other people's experiences. Imagination is really critical in developing empathy because it helps us to enter into the experience of another, and reading develops that imagination. And then here's the one I added. Pray. In James 1.5, we're told, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. God delights to give us what we need to serve him and represent him in this world. And he will gladly answer your prayers to grow empathy in you. Well, that's a great list, right? So we can all just go home now. But before we leave, I think maybe we should finish the story, right? So let's get back to it. We're going to be in verse 41. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he'd said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I love those final words of Jesus. Unbind him and let him go. That is what empathy does when it's done like Christ. As we enter other stories and as we show them the good heart of God, we get to say to them, You don't have to carry that alone, friend. I will carry it with you, and God can carry it too. As you leave today, you will be given a postcard that has that list of nine things on it. I want to encourage you to post it somewhere that you'll see it often this week. Maybe tape it to a bathroom mirror or grab a magnet, put it on your fridge, put it on your laptop, wherever you're going to see it. What would it look like if you focused on one of those steps for the next month? So I'm I'm assuming that you're going to pray every month. But what if we focused on one of those different steps each month for the next eight months? And what if we prayed all along that God would give us empathy, that he would help us to have the heart of Christ? What might God do in our midst if we begin to pray this way? How might our church culture change? Friends, who in your life needs someone to come alongside them and to weep with them? Who do you know that's celebrating but that's feeling the pain of celebrating alone? How might those in our lives begin to see and trust that God is truly good and that Jesus alone can save us from our turned-in, navel-gazing selves and give us something bigger, better, and more beautiful to live for. May it be so, church. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus is our penultimate picture of your compassion and empathy towards us. You did not sit removed from us and our stories in heaven and wring your hands. You said, I will come down to them. I will enter in. I will become one of them to redeem them, to give them hope. Thank you, Jesus. And I think about that as we think about folks in our congregation who are struggling. Uh, Father, we think about Tom Brinkman, who's in the hospital after a stroke. We think about Chandra, who is now home from the hospital after experiencing heart problems. And we think about Molly Verhagen, who uh, was receiving medical care this week for blood pressure issues during her pregnancy. Father, we thank you that we are not people without hope, that each of these stories is an opportunity, not just for you to reach down into their story, but for us as the church too as well. Help us to embody the empathy of Jesus, to enter into those stories, to love like you do, It'll cost us something, but we know, God, that you are, you're unlimited. Your supplies are unlimited, and so we pray that you would help us to keep ourselves regulated like Jesus, to walk back to you again and again, and to say, God, I need this. God, I need that. God, I need more. God, I need your help. Help us to come to you like little children, day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour, to be honest about our needs and to receive from you that we may show a watching world what your heart looks like and that we would see more and more people fall in love with you may you do that for your glory and for our good we pray it jesus in your name amen